So today we are talking with Alexandra Wilson, the Essex barrister. She is a criminal and family barrister. Hi, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I think the first question really is, what, why did you decide to be a barrister? I first decided, so there's a bit of a, a bit of a story here. So I first, first kind of had the idea when I was a teenager um, and that that was because of a quite traumatic thing in my life. So a close family friend was murdered and I followed the, the trial of the, the people that killed him that started going to court more generally. And I started to to kind of pick up on something I couldn't articulate at the time, but I think now I, I can probably put into better words. It, it, basically the disparity in the courtroom, the racial disparity, I could see that, you know, there were lots of black defendants and lots of black families sitting in the dock, but there were pretty much exclusively white barristers in the courtroom and white judges. And I remember that sitting really uncomfortably with me. And so I thought about, you know, maybe this is something that I could try and change. I had no idea how to, I absolutely <laughs> no idea how to, you know, 17 year old Alex sort of sitting there thinking, okay, there's a problem, but I don't really know how to fix this. What am I going to do about this? So I went off to university. And so I, I, I'm, I'm always reluctant to kind of pretend that I had this you know, childhood dream of being a barrister because I, I definitely didn't even know what a barrister was when I was younger. And I kind of, you know, as a teenager, like I say, started going to court and kind of picked up on the profession, but I'm not even sure I could have definitely told you the, the real differences between a solicitor and a barrister, even at that time. You know, I kind of I kind of knew, I think even in my yearbook at the end of sixth form, I, I put a barrister, but I didn't really know what that meant. It was just sort of, it was just, I want to be one of those people. I want to try and be the change that I wanted to see. Went to university, didn't study law, entertained a few different careers. I wanted to go into academia, something I still haven't ruled out, but you know, <laughs> I kind of thought about that, entertained that. And then I think it was after university that I became a bit more concrete about wanting to go into the profession and so yeah as I say there's kind of the two parts the kind of first thing that inspired me and got me thinking about the profession but then much later when I actually needed a job and had to think you know what seriously do I want to do now and have you noticed a change in the makeup of the bar since since being called uh I think in the in the three years that I've been at the bar I've certainly seen more enthusiasm for improving diversity I think it's quite a short period of time to have seen a real change I, I've certainly seen a change in attitude so I've seen that you know chambers are working much harder on access schemes even at the commercial you know I'm I'm largely at the criminal and family bar but of course, I, I like to keep my toes kind of, my toes, is that even the right word? I like to keep, <laughs> I think I'm with my fingers there in the water, not my toes. But anyway, you know, I like to kind of keep aware of what's going on generally at the bar. And I know that even commercial chambers where diversity is an even bigger problem um, are starting to set up schemes too. And there's, there's some brilliant organisations like, uh, uh, I'm, oh my God, where has it gone from my mind? Um the mini pupillage scheme, um, bridging the bar. There we go. <laughs> I don't know why that. I was. I know it begins with B. It was on the tip of my tongue. Um, bridging the bar, which is an excellent scheme um, that encourages young people from a diverse range of backgrounds to be able to do mini pupillages. And recently, they've just had some mini pupils go to the Supreme Court, and it was just. It's just incredible to see. Even you know one organization can make such a big difference imagine if all chambers sign up to that or all chambers 
develop their own initiatives that actually we can transform it in quite a short period of time so I don't think I've seen the change yet but what I have seen is a a, a lot more enthusiasm and a lot more actual action not just we we want to improve diversity we've got enthusiasm but actually we're doing something about it not not just lip service exactly exactly and you mentioned there that you didn't study law at university and that very candidly you said you weren't sure even when you left the university if you'd know the difference between a barrister and a sister do you think there's an element of encouraging people from more diverse backgrounds into the legal profession and the bar in particular which has to encompass education yeah absolutely absolutely and it's some of the work that I try to do now is kind of speaking to school aged children whether that's primary school secondary school sixth form just to try and even get them to understand what a barrister does because how can you aspire to something well I mean I did but you know aspire to something you don't understand it does it makes it a lot harder because you don't really know what skills you need you don't really know what the route's going to be you know I could have saved myself time and money in in having done a law degree for example if I'd have realized actually that would have that there would have been a cost to the GDL doing it afterwards. You know, I don't think I even appreciated that actually if I wanted to do another course after my degree, I would have to pay for that. I kind of thought, you know, student education is student finance. <laughs> and I, just, I kind of thought it was like a future me problem, which it was. But yeah, I think there needs to be a, a much better level of education as to, you know, the legal profession, because it affects everyone. It really does affect everyone. And so I think if, you know, if young kids understand, actually, you know, if I'm really good at public speaking, if I'm really good at kind of defending people, if I'm really good at standing up for what I think is right, if I'm really good at putting together a good argument, actually, there's a whole job where I can get paid to do that. Uh, (laughs) I think that, you know, I I wish I'd appreciated that from a younger age. And what do you say to people who might argue that, changes in any system are going to take time and if we allow it to happen organically then it will prevent for example um, a fear of quotas being met rather than quality being assured. I think that that's probably the most common resistance the, the com- most common argument you know in kind of resistance of <laughs> diversity schemes is that actually it should happen organically. My response would be that it's not happening you know when we leave when we, without these schemes and without pushing forward the diversity agenda these industries are not diversifying they've been the same for decades then then you know they they don't they're not keeping up with the population i think that argument would work if they were keeping up with the population but they're not they are miles behind um and so i think that you, you mentioned the the quota argument and i think that a lot of the time people get very worried about quotas i think people get very kind of yeah I think worry is the the right word that people kind of think that if you have a quota it's going to compromise quality and I've heard that argument so many times and actually I I personally am in favor of quotas I can see there are there are some drawbacks but I do think that quotas force people to look at different people they force you to look at groups of people that you might not have otherwise looked at and probably wouldn't have looked at in some in some industries you know if you have to if you have to have a certain number of people from a ba- certain background, you're forced to look at that, that that group of people and to find talent within within that group. And I think that anyone who suggests that quality would therefore be compromised is inadvertently saying that there are not talented people in those groups. So it's it kind of comes from a, a bit of a racist ideology anyway to, to say that it would compromise qu- quality because 
that would only be the basic that would only be right if there aren't talented people in those groups or if you know one race or one group of people is so much better than everyone else um and so i think if anyone who i and i hope most people who doesn't who you know who don't agree with that perspective or that point of view would recognize that actually yeah we can find talent in most groups in society in all groups not even most all groups in society and do you think the bar's traditional and traditional and elite nature prevents people of low income families from applying to the bar? Absolutely, yeah. I am. Um, I think that we would all be a bit delusional if we thought that that didn't have any impact. I mean, we we literally wear horse hair wigs and gals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it can't really get more ridiculous in my view. Um, and I think that for me, the the thing that puts people off. The, the thing that I see puts people off is the cost of all of that. It's not even just the attire. The attire is alienating, um, but there are some arguments for it. You know, it is also equalizing the fact that everyone wears a wig, everyone wears a gown. It kind of makes you feel a little bit more like it's a level playing field, but it's so expensive. You know, yeah. the, the, ga- uh, the gowns, I think like 200 and I'm trying to remember now, but I think when yeah. I bought it, it was about 250 pounds. The wig was yeah, the wigs of 600 the wig tin was like 300 and you know you're optional <laughs> yeah the wig tin very it is very optional to be fair it's very <laughs> optional and the wig bag again optional not the wig bag sorry the um the wig and gown bag again optional um but this you know the the thing is particularly if you're from a background where you don't know barristers and you don't know what is what is even optional you know, you don't want to be the one person in court that doesn't have a wig tin. And you don't know that before you start going to court. You don't know what's normal and what's not normal because you're not from a family of barristers who can say, oh, actually, just use a, you know, use a biscuit tin because no one will mind. Because actually, you might think if I'm the person that uses a biscuit tin and everyone else has got these expensive tins, I'm just ostracizing myself. You know, I'm, I'm highlighting that I'm not from the same background as everyone else. Because I see, I see on Twitter all the time, people saying, just use a plastic tub, use a biscuit tin. That's fine if you feel confident and you don't feel that imposter syndrome and you don't feel that you don't belong there in the first place. But if you already have those feelings and then you come to, I'm just being realistic, you know, you come to court with a quality street tin, I think you're going to be thinking, actually, people are going to laugh at me. It's a bit like school. That's why I've got a roses tin. Exactly. There you go. Because it's all about roses, not policy street. (laughs) But no, quite. I mean, I think, I think, look, I think that actually these tins, it's not me justifying the cost of the tin because actually I think that it's extortionate. And I think that it's, it is so, it creates a kind of another layer of exclusion for people that actually you're not part of this world where we can all afford to, Mm to spend frivolously which is what it is really yeah. <laughs> you know it is ornate an ornate tin to keep a wig in yeah and talking about that 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 world did did you know anyone growing up at, that was a barrister or is that is that why I mean is that why you've led to doing more mentoring yeah exactly so no I did I didn't know any barristers I met I think the first time I met a barrister was after well, I, I did work experience. So I kind of, I when I was actually in my year 10 work experience, I went and did a week in a local court. And so I, I remember um, meeting some barristers then. I'm not, I can't remember now whether they were, because I shadowed some CPS barristers and so I can't remember if they were the self-employed. Uh, no, I can't remember whether they were self-employed and just working for the CPS or whether they were in-house. But I remember the first time I properly got to know like a self-employed barrister, you know, a barrister doing what I do now was after university. and 
he was brilliant he he's one of my mentors even still today and a friend a really close friend and he made me believe that I was good enough you know having that conversation with him kind of made me realize that actually you know normal people do this job um, and sometimes sometimes people just need to hear that it's not I, I don't think that we purposefully create the idea that you know we're all above society I just think it's almost inevitable when you go around in horsehair wigs and gowns that people are going to think you think that <laughs> you know so it's our job to kind of break down that barrier and to go out and into schools and to young people and explain to them that actually we are ordinary people and there's a lot of ordinary you know I've got a lot of friends at the bar I don't think I would have loads of friends here if I thought everyone was awful you know I think that there are <laughs> there are lots of brilliant people and yeah and now that's exactly why I try to go into schools I have my own mentors it's just mentees sorry mentees and mentors I have mentors still but I have my own mentees and I think it's really important to kind of get the message out that if you're bright like dedicated and committed and you want to you want to work in this industry then why not you know (laughs) it's not for people from a certain background at all no and that's that's one reason I do mentoring as well because I didn't know anyone growing up as as a solicitor or a barrister and I find it important to give other people who are going through the same same process I did more of a assistance in terms of applications what it's actually like to be a solicitor higher rights advocate exactly and because there are certain things in these applications that people are looking for you know for example they want to see at the bar people want to see advocacy experience and if you don't have someone giving you that little nudge it can be hard to know that that's what you need to be doing in preparation um you know if someone's got a dad who's a high court judge and you know a mum who's a barrister or you know a supreme court judge let's say um then they, they're obviously going to be told, you know, if you want to be a barrister, you need to make sure you're getting advocacy experience from university. You know, to start thinking about who you're going to shadow, what, what, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think that's what I'm trying to replicate. I'm trying to almost be like a little fairy godmother to, to some of these, to some of these um, students and just give them a little nudge in the right direction. It is. It's still such a closed world. It's so difficult to find that information if you don't have it already at hand it's like that phrase prices to those who can't afford it free to those who can exactly yeah completely completely um I wanted to ask aside from the damage that you could argue the profession is doing it to itself by just missing out on a huge pool of very talented and intelligent people if they aren't recognizing the importance of diversity what do you think the importance of diversity is at the bar I think it brings a range of perspective and that perspectives and that's so important in a job where we're representing the general population. You know, I in both my criminal and my family practice, I'm representing ordinary people from a complete range of backgrounds. There is no typical criminal or typical person who ends up in the family court as much as people might like to believe there is. There's there's not. I've represented people from all different types of backgrounds different racial backgrounds of course different genders different ages from different like class backgrounds or different socioeconomic backgrounds and so as a profession our job is to be that you know those people's voice like we are their voice on on sometimes the most important days of their life you know many of my clients have been at risk of losing their children or losing their liberty and that's a really important job and I think that clients expect that our profession properly will represent the population it's not just about our you know our profession and our kind of internal look at oh morally should we be diverse clients expect it 
They expect that we are working alongside a range of people because our job is to represent a range of people. And if we only ever see certain people as defendants, you know, behind bars or behind glass screens in court, that will shape our own prejudices and our own views of those those people or people from that background. And so it's really important just on a kind of our own experience of different people and making sure that we can properly represent people from a range of different backgrounds that we are regularly mixing with people from mm. a, a range of backgrounds and the easiest way for us to do that is within our own profession you know our, our own profession has a duty to make sure that we're all mixed and diverse <laughs> and that we're making sure that no view is being excluded and sorry just to quickly follow up on that because I was wondering if you've ever felt almost the reverse of that almost um in a way that that <laughs> you'll get some women solicitors, for example, in divorce and they want a male, um, sorry, w- w- women clients in a divorce might want a male sister because they have an internalized notion of what strength or professionalism looks like. Absolutely. Do you, have yeah. You... yeah, God, sorry, I didn't even let you finish your question there, but no, I mean, I was so keen to be like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> because it does happen. No, I think it does. And I think that, you know, you often get, for example, male sex offenders who want female counsel because that there's a there there are naturally some perceptions that you know that they, they think can be kind of combated by having counsel from a particular gender or particular race. I I remember early on in my practice, I w- went to represent someone who had um, been charged with uh, a racially aggravated assault and when I went along I think they were surprised to see me because the racially aggravated assault was against a black woman it was a white man and I think he he felt probably quite uncomfortable because actually you know that this was I had you know personal characteristics which were relevant really to to his offend to his offense in that he was alleged to have you know expressed a very racist attitude towards a black woman but I think what I even in that that case is a good illustration of this what I reminded myself of in that case is that I'm here to do a professional job my personal characteristics yes they might help me have a more informed view of the world or a more informed view of my some of my clients or a more informed view of the criminal justice system but as a barrister I'm a professional I'm not there you know in my capacity as a you know a, as as any one of my personal characteristics I am there as a professional in that environment and that's why I could still represent you know this person in fact actually he got acquitted so you know it, it shows that actually that in these in these circumstances you you kind of have to detach an element of your personal identity and so yeah I have no I have absolutely no doubt that there were clients that will pick me because of my characteristics and clients that probably won't um, and the problem is is the bar I say problem but you know the bar does allow for that with especially with direct access increasing you know where clients can go directly to barristers Um, I have no doubt that in domestic abuse cases women often want to be represented by other women sometimes with for legitimate reasons sometimes just because they they just want it you know sometimes it might be a safety mechanism sometimes it is just they they just want to be represented by a woman so I think there's a I definitely think it happens I think it's hard 
in some cases to, to stop that. I think that what I would be upset by is if, for example, and there's been cases like this in the press before, where solicitors or clients have said, I don't want this person because of their personal characteristics. Um, you know, if they, if I got put forward and someone said, actually, I don't want her because I don't want, I don't want a mixed race woman representing me. Um, and my clerks were like, okay, sure, we'll swap it. <laughs> you know, that would obviously be a problem. Um, and that goes for anyone, you know, I think if someone called up and said, I don't want a white man representing me, I, equally, a clerk should not say, you know, oh, that's fine, we'll swap it. Um, because you should, that that is just overt discrimination for no good reason. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that stuff we can monitor and we can make sure that as a profession, we don't allow that to happen. But in terms of like internal, if someone thinks to themselves, this is who I want, and then just doesn't say it, I don't think we can stop that, unfortunately. Alex, you've written a fantastic book called In Black and White. What was the motivation behind writing that book? I was I was actually asked to write um, my book after a tweet went viral. I've had two viral tweets, <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, they shape they shape your life. Um, but the first the first one was probably the um, yeah the 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 one that kind of shaped my life the most. I'd say in that I tweeted that I was going to be representing people in the courts of England and Wales prosecuting and defending in a couple of months time and that this is what a barrister looks like and I tweeted my my call to the bar photo and I remember tweeting that kind of thinking oh this is you know I kind of want to get the message out there it's a bit I've touched on it in some of the other questions but you know I really wanted people to kind of see that actually yes you know you 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 don't have to look like this image we often see of a barrister, a kind of white, middle-aged male. Actually, there are others out here. You know, we, we're here, we exist. Um, and I wanted to send, send, that, send that message out to young people. I did not expect it to pick up in the way it did. <laughs> I, I remember waking up in the morning being like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is crazy. I feel so seen. Like, I feel just really under the spotlight. Um, and then, yeah, so off the back of that, some literary agents got in touch and said did I think did I want to think about writing a book about some of my experiences and my background um in, in you know my journey to the bar but also the kind of first year of practice and I remember thinking yeah I do want to but I don't know if this is a bit premature <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a pupil barrister this could all go very wrong um and so I decided to write it anyway and, then, um, and I just decided that I would wait and see if I got tenancy before announcing that I'd written a book and it's it's all I'm very pleased to say it's all been it's all been um it's all been great really I've actually really enjoyed writing it and I think it's achieved what I wanted it to achieve which really was to try and a reach out to young people and let them know that yes we there are some people in this profession from a, a range of backgrounds and you can do it too and we want you to do it too you know we want you to come to the bar we want to see a more diverse bar but also that actually I wanted to highlight some really important issues that I was seeing in my practice. You know, the, the over-criminalization of black people, the fact that so there are so many vulnerable people in our system, so many vulnerable people, you know, people who have grown up in the care system and have been exploited in some way, people with mental health difficulties, people who are, who are living in poverty. I kind of wanted to shine a light in a really human way on some of these people because I feel that the the way that most people hear about crimes is through the media, through, you know, flash stories that are kind of like this awful person did this awful thing. And we lose the, the human element. 
you know, the, the actually, the, the thing that I feel, or James, I'm sure you felt many times, you know, sitting there opposite a client who is just another person who might have just made a mistake in their life. And many people make mistakes, you know, and some people are just more unlucky than others. And I could, I found it so hard when I was explaining to my friends and my family to capture that really human element that this is just another person. This isn't like a, a villain, you know, it's actually just another person. And hopefully my book has captured that. And that, that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast series is to try and show that mo- most people, when they come into contact with the criminal justice system, it is just through the media. It's X got arrested. This is the sentence they've got. They have no idea what the process is. So from the point of the allegation and arrest through to a potential prison sentence, it's trying to put the pieces together so people have more of an informed picture and idea of what actually happens in the system. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic because that's exactly what people need. I think people need to have that. It's such a, I know we've touched on this, but it is such a closed off system. It's so kind of justice behind walls. And it's funny because we talk about open justice in the UK all the time. And actually so much of it is done in, you know, four walls of a courtroom that only the defendant and their legal counsel or or their family members are in. And no one really hears about what's happening, you know, behind the scenes. Talk about four walls. Um... I understand you're writing another book. <laughs> uh, what, what's, what's that going to be um, based on? Yeah, so I am. So I'm writing another book that should be out at the end of next year, although it may be coming out beginning of 2023, because as usual, I have so much on. <laughs> I'm just trying to, trying to get it finished. Um, but yeah, I, it's a fiction book, so it's quite different. Um, it's called The Witness. And... Um, as is always the case with fiction, there's that I, I don't know how much I can say without creating spoilers, you know, but <laughs> I think it's, I think that the general, the general thing that I can talk about is that it touches on a lot of the themes that I spoke about in my nonfiction. So a lot of the, the issues with our criminal justice system, but I've got the literary freedom to kind of just be a bit more creative I think that's one of the reasons I've kind of turned to fiction is that actually you can touch a lot of these same issues um but through a a fictionalized narrative which just means that you just have a bit more freedom to explore some of these issues I think that it would be talking you know I know I said that I was worried my book was premature and I actually don't I think it was I think it actually was just right I think I captured the kind of the moment of me going in to this brand new profession as a young pupil barrister. But I think if I wrote another nonfiction now, not, you know, <laughs> I've only been here three years. <laughs> I'm gonna run out of material. So I think I think that there had to be a balance of what the next kind of writing direction was for me. Um, and fiction feels like it's it's the kind of perfect move, but we'll see when it actually comes out. <laughs> I'm sure people will tell me whether or not they think it is. So. Cause I mean, we, we talk quite a bit. And I know every time we speak, you, you're all so busy. How how do you manage your work life balance? I could manage it a lot better. I think I have to say that. Hold, I think I have to hold my hands up and say that I. That's an area that I'm still. You know, if I was going to have an interview now for like a new job, and they would say, "What's your weakness at balancing my time?" <laughs> because <laughs> I think I think that I I constantly say I'm going to get better at it, and I fail to. To be honest, I think that I I take on a lot of like I I. I I take on a lot and sometimes I need to remind myself that Rome wasn't built in a day you know that actually 
the, a lot of the things that I'm trying to, the, a lot of the things that I'm trying to achieve are going to take some time. And, you know, I, I do want them to, I, I would love to click my fingers and us to live in a nice, equal, fair society where we have proper representation in every industry. I would love it. I would, of course, love it. I started watching Formula One the other day and I was like, well, th- this could be my next challenge because <laughs> <laughs> this industry is not very diverse. You know, there's barely any fe- women full stop, you know. And I was like, Alex, take a step back. You've got more than enough to be doing at the bar. <laughs> I don't think you need to go anywhere near Formula One. But, you know, it's it's the... I think I have a kind of natural ambition to, to, you know, when I see something that's wrong, I want to fix it. And I want to be able to, to help as many people as possible. And I'm sure, and James, again, I know that you also mentor loads of people and you are also always taking on um, a lot of different commitments. I remember what, I think the last time we were speaking, you were saying about, you know, coaching rugby on the weekend. And I think it is so, it is so difficult to manage your time and when you when you're someone who naturally wants to help people when you naturally want to see the you you see problems and you you want to fix them but my I know it's not new year yet but my new year's resolution maybe a new academic year resolution (laughs) um is going to be to just try and make a bit more time for yourself because I think what is important is that when you're do and this goes out to everyone who is you know helping people in whatever capacity that is it's so important that you don't burn out and I think that that's what I have to be cautious of. You know, you don't want to get to the point where you're like, I've I've tried to help everyone, but now I'm just exhausted and I'm unwell and I'm ill. And I just, I don't have anything left to give because I've given it all. And that's not a healthy position to be in. So I think sometimes you just have to draw the line a bit and be like, actually, sometimes I need to just have my whole weekend, not just one day of my weekend, my whole weekend yeah. just for me. Um, and so I'm trying to get better at that. I really am. Work in progress. <laughs> Have you got any top tips for law students looking to join the bar? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that my number one top tip would be to try and find what your unique, I don't want to use the unique selling point to describe a person, but you know, you like what, what makes you stand out? You know what? Because I think that even I was a little bit afraid to identify this before coming to the bar, but it, it, that is what gets you through interviews. You want people to leave that interview thinking, do you remember that person who did X, Y, Z? You've got to, you know, I feel like everyone's got to have their own identity and it's it probably works for every industry. I don't think it's just the law. But I think that don't be, don't be afraid to be like, this is who I am. These are my principles. These are my morals. And this, this is why I'm an asset to your chambers. This is why I'm an asset to your, your inner court. You know, whatever it is that you're, you're interviewing for. I think that, you need to have a strong sense of self because yes, of course, when, when we're in our barrister mode, we are professionals and that's separate from our sense of self. But as a barrister, you are expected to have integrity. You're expected to, you know, be able to be, to confidently express your views on things. And pretty much every interview will get you to do that. So be proud of who you are, you know, and, and actually that brings like, I've, I've said a million times, it brings a level of diversity to, the, you know to our profession anyway that we've got people who are proud of who they are not all trying to fit this same mold of what they think a barrister should be so I think that would be my my first top tip but my second one would be try and get as much experience as possible and I know that's difficult particularly in COVID um obviously courts have kind of they closed down for a bit and then people were going back remotely and, and now it's a bit of a, a mix it doesn't have to be formal work experience. I think that's what I wish I'd appreciated a little bit more is that even going and sitting in the back of court, you can talk about that in your interviews. You can talk about that in your applications and it shows initiative. 
you can literally go and sit in your local magistrate's court or local crown court obviously check in advance that they are let they, they they should be letting people in open justice but you know covid rules sometimes mean that some rooms they don't let people in um without you know kind of registering before or letting them know but go and go along and sit in make notes not just general you know like a verbatim note write what you actually learn because then when you go to those interviews you can say when I, I went and spent a week in a crown court in blah 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 I learned xyz and you know you can say you can be I don't think anyone would criticize you for saying it wasn't a, a formal mini pupillage I don't think that matters at all I can't imagine anyone saying well it wasn't a formal mini pupillage like no one cares <laughs> you know I certainly don't think the people I've met care you know I can't say no one but I think that it I actually think it would be a selling point it would be a look how this person has used what they they had available in the time they had available to make sure that they've accumulated as much experience as possible and it also works really well for if you work full-time you know I think that one of the things that people is unpaid work experience at the bar and so I think that 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 is obviously sorry not often obviously a stumbling block for some people and so whereas if you go and do it in your own time you can do it when when you can um, which I think is a good thing. And um, what, what are the steps for joining being admitted to the bar in terms of applying to chambers? Yeah, yeah. So um, the, okay, so the first process, or the, the first kind of step in the process is getting a law degree or a graduate diploma in law if you don't have a law degree. And then the bar professional training course is the next step. The bar professional training course was really expensive when I did it I think it's gone down in price um, because the inns of court have set up their own court their own course and so it's kind of brought the private providers it's forced them <laughs> to, to bring their prices down a little bit which is a good thing and hopefully we'll see that that drops more and more in the next few years when I did it it was I think about 19,000 um, but yeah as I said I think it's dropped by a couple of thousand now so that's a one-year course or two years if you do it part-time and then after that is pupillage so it's up to you, really. I always say this to students. It's up to you when you apply for pupillage. The earliest you can apply is in your final year of your law degree or on the GDL. I applied on the GDL. Um, that's the, uh, like I say, it's the earliest you can apply for pupillage. And so there's no pressure to apply then. And I think, again, that's one thing that I, I pass on to my mentees and I wish I'd known myself. There's no rush. <laughs> there really is no rush. Yet. And I think, I think there's a, there's a real pressure to think, oh my God, I need to do it as quickly as possible. I need to get into the profession straight away. Actually, paralegaling can really help your application or working in a different industry can really help your application. In fact, some chambers, I feel almost expect it. There are some, you know, some of the top chambers, when they're looking at your application, there are, there are sections that say, what work experience have you accumulated? Not many pupilages, that's a separate section, work experience. And so sometimes there is an expectation that you will have paralegaled or perhaps worked at a solicitor's firm or paralegal in a solicitor's firm or worked in a, in another capacity at a solicitor's firm or you know worked for the civil service for a bit or worked wherever else it is you know for a charity or at a law clinic you know often they're expecting that other um, work experience so you can apply for pupillage any point um from as I say last year of your law degree or GDL and then I can't remember the expiry after having done the bar professional training course I think it's about five years that you have to apply for pupillage so and the reason it's five years is and I say this in a reassuring way it's five years because not everyone gets it first time you know that that's because they know that 
it's not you know and I, I say that because I know a lot of students get very disappointed they'll make their applications and don't get it it's very very common at the bar for people to have applied years for years like you know one year after the other after the other after the other like it's very very common it's actually quite unique to not so as in if that is you if you're in that position where you've applied and you're thinking or even if you've applied multiple times and you're thinking I'm just not succeeding at this I really thought this was the career for me maybe it isn't maybe you can explore elsewhere or maybe you're just you just, next time will be your time you know it's that they, they give that gap because they know that they don't, there's not even enough places for everyone to get it straight away so yeah hopefully that outlines what the route is and then yeah after pupillage you apply for tenancy within your own chambers or you can apply elsewhere um I applied within my own chambers and I'm still at the same chambers I did pupillage with um which works for me we have a nice mixed practice but some people move because they might change the area of law that they're interested in or they just didn't like the chambers that they were in how common is that for someone to have their pupillage in one chambers and then move surprisingly common actually I I had the impression when I sort of started that if I didn't get tenancy my life would be over you know <laughs> the kind of really dramatic student thing where you're like if I don't get tenancy like this is all a waste and now I've got a book coming out and imagine if I don't get tenancy this is just gonna be horrific and actually I don't think it would have really mattered too much because I think that it's surprisingly common so many people do third sixes so if you've if you finished your pupillage and you weren't offered tenancy at your chambers or you didn't apply, normally you'll apply to do like a shorter version of your mini pu- of your pupillage, sorry. So you'll just do a six month stint somewhere. Um, and then they decide after that whether they keep you on or sometimes you'll go on to another chambers and do another six months. There are a few people I know that have done a few different um, pupillages and third sixes. I don't think that's as common. I think usually people will just make one move if they're going to make the move. Um, and some people, you know, people move at all different times of their career. So some people will stay at their chambers for five, 10 years and then decide that they're, they're ready to make a move. It's obviously less common that people will be somewhere for like 30 years and then suddenly decide to move. That, that normally might mean there's been a fallout. But <laughs> I think, you know, I think younger practitioners who are still exploring different areas of law, who are still open to learning something new, it, it's actually more common than I thought. I, I don't know the statistics, but it's definitely more common anecdotally than I thought it was coming into the profession. Mm-hmm. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I'm sure I look, we look forward to reading your next book whenever it is released. Thank you. Thank you. No pressure. <laughs> thank you, Alex. See you later. <laughs> thank Thanks you. Too. See you.